Polish composer Karol Szymanowski was one of the 20th century's most remarkable poets in sound. He was a magician when he came to translating the impressions of the senses into music. Szymanowski was a big admirer of Debussy, the so-called musical impressionist, who in his great orchestral work Iberia explicitly evoked the perfumes of the night. Szymanowski's sound world may be rather different from Debussy, yet that title could work just as well for music like this. That's the beginning of Szymanowski's first violin concerto, written in 1916, inspired by a poem by the Polish poet Tadeusz Myczynski. It's entitled May Night, and that exquisitely perfumed nocturnal world, that sense of a voyage into a world of the senses, it's all very typical of Szymanowski's sound world. Szymanowski himself had an intense love of scents and fragrances and the way they could evoke atmospheres and feelings, the kind of feelings that are intense yet difficult to define. In fact, he loved fragrances in a quite literal sense. Some years ago, I met a man who'd worked for Szymanowski's Viennese publisher before World War II. He said you could tell when Szymanowski was coming into the office because you could smell his cologne wafting up the stairs ahead of him. But Szymanowski was no mere Epicurean. This wasn't just a devotion to sensuous pleasure for its own sake. There was a strong mystical element in his nature too. And nowhere is this more apparent than in the extraordinary choral orchestral work Szymanowski called his Symphony No. 3, subtitle The Song of the Night. This is nothing like a symphony in the Beethovenian sense. It's in one movement without even the ghosts of the four movements of a classical symphony. If there's a logic here, it's the logic of dreams. And again, a highly potent sense of atmosphere. After all, night is traditionally the time when the secret soul, the life of the unconscious mind, awakes. Real flowers and trees may grow in daylight, Night is the time when stranger growths uncoil their delicate tendrils. beginning of Szymanowski's Third Symphony. There's one very Debussyan element there, but transformed into new terms. Debussy was one of the first Western classical composers to make extensive use of non-Western scales. For instance, the whole tone scale. Now, the normal Western classical major scale is made up of a mixture of whole tones and semitones, half tones. 
So the movement of the scale isn't quite even and equal. Sometimes it moves up a whole tone, sometimes a half tone. The whole tone scale is exactly what it says. It's all whole tones. Szymanowski takes the notes of that scale, all of them, and spreads them out to form this eerie, ambiguous-sounding chord built up from a bass C. The scoring is wonderful. We have a ripely sonorous low chord for woodwind, harps, low piano and organ, plus a throbbing offbeat rhythm on soft timpani. It's like an irregular, excited heartbeat. All adds to this sense of pregnancy. Now, Debussy would probably have been content to stick with just the notes of the whole tone scale. But very soon, Szymanowski begins to colour those notes chromatically. The whole tone chord remains the frame, but those tendrils are already beginning to stretch across it, blurring the outline, adding a touch of yearning, restless unease. last chord's quite a sharp dissonance. The longing, aspiring, soon turns painful, but then it subsides back into the whole tone chord again. And now the voices enter. And the words give direct expression to feelings that are already aroused in that short but highly charged introduction. Oh, do not sleep, friend, through this night. You, a soul, while we are suffering through this night. Banish slumber from your eyes. The great secret is revealed in this night. The words are from one of the treasures of medieval Persian poetry by the 13th century mystic Jalal Adin Rumi. Rumi is a hugely important figure in Middle Eastern literature and religious thought. His burial place in Konya in Turkey is a shrine, and he's a figure of devotion worldwide, especially for members of the Sufi movement. Now, Szymanowski was hugely drawn to the art, the thought of the Islamic Middle East. At the time he wrote the Third Symphony, that's between 1914 and 1916, he'd had very little actual contact with this world. A brief visit to North Africa during a Mediterranean holiday was just about his only contact with Islamic countries. But it fired his imagination intensely. Well, perhaps the imagination thrives best when the actual contact is minimal. Debussy evokes Spain with fabulous beauty in work after work, yet he only ever spent half a day there on a quick trip across the Spanish-French border. But back to those words of Rumi's, especially that last line, the great secret is revealed in this night. The idea that night is a time when mysterious truths are uncovered 
is one you don't just find in Middle Eastern mystical writing. The European Romantics hymned night, especially in the transcendent second act of the greatest of all Western erotic mystic compositions, Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, as Szymanowski was well aware. There are interesting hints of Tristan in Szymanowski's brief but potent orchestral prelude. Do you remember that soft, pulsating, offbeat timpani rhythm? That timpani rhythm is very similar to the key rhythmic pattern in the love duet at the heart of Tristan, the point at which the lovers, reclining under a radiant night sky, sing, O sink down upon us, night of love, O sinkt hernieder, Nacht der Liebe. Act two of Tristan, there we find the same themes, night and erotic love, and underneath them, behind them, within them, the potential for some kind of mystical revelation, the great secret, a secret hidden in the world of dreary, oppressive, daylight reality. It is absolutely the same world as evoked by Rumi. All this is particularly poignant for Szymanowski in 1914 to 1916, the time when he was writing the Third Symphony. This was the beginning of World War I. The European cultured world, in which as an artistic rich gentleman Szymanowski was very much at home, was being torn to pieces. And very soon after 1916 would come the Russian Revolution and the Szymanowski family would lose its home and its estates in the Polish Ukraine. Did Szymanowski have a sense of the coming catastrophe? Does this make this yearning to disappear into a world of night and dreams even more urgent? Perhaps you can sense something of that as the first section of the Third Symphony moves to its ecstatic and terrible first climax. It's like the breaking of an awesome, vast, slow-motion wave. Round heaven's starry dome you circle in this night, like an eagle you fly above. Now a hero is your soul in this night. Szymanowski is not the only artist who would have yearned to fly like an eagle, away from the grim reality of the world of day in the first years of World War I. But there are other reasons for Szymanowski feeling intense personal involvement with the world of ideas and feelings in Rumi's poem. Szymanowski was homosexual. As a member of the upper classes, he lived in a milieu where such things were, well, if not exactly sanctioned, they were certainly tolerated in a half-knowing, half-denying kind of way. But Szymanowski would still have been very much aware that, for the most part, to borrow that famous phrase from Oscar Wilde, this was the love that dare not speak its name. But here's an exquisite, mystical poem in which a friend is addressed in highly erotic terms. And in the Polish version, given that Polish is a highly gendered language, it's made absolutely clear that this nocturnal friend or lover that the male poet is addressing is also male. 
Interestingly, when I first got to know Szymanowski's Third Symphony, it was in a Polish recording with a soprano soloist. It was claimed that the soprano and the tenor were equally legitimate as soloists. They were interchangeable. Yet Szymanowski's score is quite clear. Tenor, male solo voice. Now, this is especially important at the moment of what I'd like to call climactic stillness in Szymanowski's Third Symphony. The words are, such quiet, others sleep, I and God alone together in this night. That pregnant, highly charged whole tone chord now changes to a much purer octave plus fifth. And above this, the tenor pours out his soul as lover to God. of the friend-lover and of God seem to have become somewhat blurred here. But as I said before, in Rumi's poem, the friend-lover and indeed God himself are male and they're hymned in erotically charged language by a male voice. And that erotic charge is superbly heightened by Szymanowski. You especially feel it at the huge upsurge that follows that point of climactic stillness. It's similar to the great wave-breaking moment we heard earlier, but now it blossoms into a new idea on Szymanowski's massively enriched and organ-enhanced full orchestra. figure on orchestra and organ at the end is the most explicit invocation yet of Wagner's Tristan, that great Wagnerian forebear of Szymanowski's Song of the Night. I'm thinking of the painful, chromatic, longing, desire motif from the beginning of the opera's prelude. Wagner is Szymanowski's Western artistic forefather here is clear enough. But Szymanowski is his own man. He follows his own path here. And like Rumi, he reaches his own very different conclusion from Wagner. In Tristan, the lovers never find full erotic sexual satisfaction. For them, the great secret that night ultimately teaches them is that true fulfillment of love comes in renunciation, renunciation of the world, of the illusory happiness that the world holds out. Transcendence of the body, of the suffering that desire brings, can only be found in death. Not so, it seems, for Rumi. 
For him, all the wonders of the natural phenomenal world, including sexual desire, are signs and symbols of the divine. They're places where the divine might be encountered. There's no suggestion of renunciation of the cruel world in his poem. But in the poem, mention of the friend-lover gradually fades as we have the revelation of God in the transcendent beauty of the night. Szymanowski, however, having recalled Tristan, takes us back to the imagery at the start of the poem. The lover returns. Do not sleep, friend, through this night. The vision must be shared. The music builds to one last huge breaking slow-motion wave. And then we have another reference to Tristan. Wagner's desire motive is now harmonized triumphantly with the pregnant whole-tone chord at the start of the symphony. As the climax fades, we can still feel the persistence of that deep organ pedal. Actually, literally feel it in the concert hall. You can almost feel the floor vibrating under your feet. It's a firm foundation, the kind of harmonic basis that Wagner's Tristan Prelude searched for in vain. And it persists as the tenor solo and the chorus deliver fabulous, exotic Szymanowskian harmonies. The chorus sings, you and God, alone together in this night. The tenor, silence binds my tongue with fetters, but I speak, though tongueless, in this night. Yet underpinning it all is that deep, solid, elemental bass note, the still centre around which the intoxicating beauty of the night rotates. Last comes the moment of final revelation, of magic. As the deep bass C persists, we have some gorgeously scored fifth chords, flutes, muted brass, celeste, harps, piano, string harmonics and hushed tremolandos. While underneath, the violas and the cellos perform harmonic glissandos. What they do is they run their fingers lightly up and down the C strings to get all the natural harmonics, the overtones of C, in a fabulously delicate, rustling, whispering sound.
There behold the starry roads of this night, stillness, the night sky, pure harmony, a beautiful musical impression, yet created in Shimonovskian rather than in Debussyan terms. It's pure harmony in more senses than one, the musical, of course, but also the physical and human, as well as the spiritual. In a sense, we've gone on a journey here. It's like the way that one's eyes get gradually accustomed to the dark and of seeing the fabulous, rich, detailed, multidimensional clarity of a starscape more and more clearly in a night sky. Yet it's all anchored to the same low sea on which we began. So in another sense, we haven't moved at all. We have two lovers lying together under a night sky, gradually seeing clearer, making out the finer points of the starry heavens. These are the ones that Rumi called the refined ones, who can see the hidden truths veiled in worldly things, until we reach the point when, again, as Rumi put it, the great secret is revealed in this night. Does that sound vague and mystical to you? Still, the result in Szymanowski's Third Symphony is a musical ending of extraordinary serenity. And that's not a word you hear often used to describe music written in the 20th century, especially not music written amid the destructive frenzy of a world war.